Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. The other day, a friend sent me a few comments about uh, this podcast that he picked up from various blogs. And my favorite one was someone who said, and I quote, I don't know who this dude Lorenzo is, but if you can get by his lame and annoying introductions and then put up with the bad sound quality, the talks he's posting aren't too bad. (laughs) What I really like about that comment is that I think it's a great compliment to all of our speakers, since he's obviously willing to put up with me in order to get to the meat of the program. So thanks for listening, everyone, and particularly thanks to all of you out there who are hoping that this will be a short introduction today. (laughs) Actually, I, I probably should dedicate this program to that observant blogger. It's quite obvious that this introduction is already lame and annoying, but the sound quality today is really going to drive him nuts. The talk you're about to hear was given on Saturday afternoon in the big tent at Entheon Village at Burning Man this year, and by then we were on backup power, which required using a smaller sound system. So my cassette tape recording of today's program has even lower than average sound quality. Now, in order to make up for this, I plan on doing a telephone interview with Nick sometime in the not-too-distant future, and I'll tell you more about that after we hear today's program. Now, you'd better get prepared to strain a little to hear Nick speaking, particularly in the beginning because there was a huge group of people surrounding the Shulgans who had just finished their presentation and were doing their best to get out of that overcrowded tent in order to make room for the next talk. Now that I think about it, what you are about to hear is exactly what it sounded like where I was sitting with my recorder, which was about five feet away from Nick and next to, but not in front of, one of the little loudspeakers we were using. And for the hundreds of you who were in the tent that day and listening to it live, well, this may be even more clear than (laughs) what you were able to hear in person. Right now, I'd better quit with this lame and annoying introduction and let you hear what Nick Sand had to say about synergistic combinations in the future when he gave his Palenque Norte lecture at the 2006 Burning Man Festival. We'll pick up right after my introduction when Nick explained why he decided to make the transition from a quiet life in academia to becoming the underground hero of the 60s who blessed the world with orange sunshine arguably the best acid ever made. Ah, those were the days, my friends, those lazy, crazy days when it was still legal to make LSD and DMT. Why someone who is basically a straight person in the academic world would devote himself to a life of crime? And the reason for that can be said in two words. Atomic bomb. And when I grew up, um, I grew up under the shadow of the atomic bomb. And my father was on the second rank of the Manhattan Project and also the Chicago Substitute Alloy Metals that made the first fissionable uranium. So I was very impacted by this growing up and watching the horrific 
destruction of uh, and vaporization of cities and people and thought to myself, there's got to be a better way than this. One of my father's uh, exchange students was an Indian who I knew as Raja. I thought that was his name. But he was actually a Raja from India studying under my father at Columbia and Brooklyn Poly uh, to get his PhD in chemistry. He taught me yoga. And so I began to realize that besides the scientific background, there was also the spiritual side to life. And I began to look for the things which would open the spiritual world to me and soon discovered LSD, mescaline, DNT, and in those days, they were research chemicals. And they were easily obtained by simply walking into a bioorganic house and saying, I'd like your catalog number 1468, Eli Sturgic Acid, Diaphylum, and please. Oh, good, yes, sir. And, and how much would you like of that? Oh, I said, well, this week I'll just have a tenth of a gram. And I'm dressed in calfskin boots and paisley pants and, you know, all this. And they thought this was very novel. And I started to be friends with the presidents of these fine organic houses and making comments, uh, compounds for them rare intermediates that I would use for making DNT and DET and uh, LSD and mescaline, and I would sell them intermediates, which they could then resell to people interested in this, these compounds. As I started to use uh, psychedelics, my first experience was mescaline, and I had such a profound experience uh, taking mescaline. I did it with a three-day fast, meditation, yoga, I believe strongly in uh, elaborate preparation uh, for uh, a psychedelic sacrament. Uh, I think these are healing medicines, all of them, uh, either the, uh, the synthesized ones and also the plant helpers. <clears throat> I believe also that they could be used successfully and creatively for recreational use and they can be also used for deep spiritual use. As the time went on, I had to make a decision because the restrictions began to uh, be applied by the FDA, who at that time were the only people who had any involvement with this. And so they would come around and they would say, oh, Mr. Sand, I see you're here on this list of uh, people who have bought the this experimental compound, Eli-Sergic-Gastodiaphragmatarchia. Not that they could ever pronounce it correctly, but they, they attempted to. And uh, I said, oh, yes, that was really interesting. I got this, came with a little teeny vial, and as I opened the package, it dropped and fell on the floor. You see that little stain? That's where it went to. He said, yeah, but what about the two pounds of mescaline that you ordered? Oh, the mescaline, that was great. We have to put that on the cereal every morning. It was wonderful. Thank you. Have a very great sparkly day. It's all fine. I said, oh, well, if you get any more, would you please return to the FDA or to the chemical group? Absolutely, sir. No problem. Slowly, slowly, I began to realize that the FDA was not going to be able to do the job that it had been appointed to do, which is to guard our safety and to guarantee the purity of the drugs and the safety of those drugs that we take. And that because of this weird gray zone that turned into a black zone of draconian uh, and 
evilly, politically motivated laws, which have nothing to do with safety testing or anything like this, um, the drugs became more and more illegal, and as a result of people having to go deeper underground, they did not have the uh, ability to find pure psychedelics. So then a lot of problems occurred. In fact, many years after I was arrested, I had the opportunity to speak to uh, the head of the DEA uh, chemist, uh, Bob Sager, and he said, you know, Nikki, when I was so, I was so glad when I busted you, and I was able to provide all the evidence. As we started to investigate this evidence, I noticed that all the orange sunshine tablets were exactly 300 mics. Not 299, not 301, I was kind of like perplexed at how you managed to get such great precision. Then we started analyzing the material, we found it was absolutely pure, one-spot material. And then I began to wonder about what I had done, and when we had got you safely away in prison, um, I realized I had done a disservice to the public because the rotten mixture that had come after that, that poisoned so many people, um, were, were actually the results of our work. Eventually, I developed Orange Sunshine with uh, Robert Timothy Scully, who was a disciple of Augustus Owsley Stanley, who was the man who did the first production runs of LSD uh, that really kicked off the whole psychedelic revolution, and that was White Lightning, made by Housley. Um, and he was a great motivator to me. He kicked me in the ass about the purity of my compounds and made me perfect my art so that I could produce really pure compounds. Um, eventually, I wound up in uh, prison and in Canada, where I had uh, finally apprehended after 22 years of being a fugitive. Uh, I was given a 15-year sentence for the manufacture of Orange Sunshine, and uh, these days that's a very small sentence, and those days it was a very large sentence. And during this time I wrote a book, and the book is called Psychedelic Secrets, uh, a manual for the use of psychedelic sacraments. It has not yet been published. But I would like to discuss um, one chapter in that book, which I wrote in 97, uh, called Synergy. And um, the reason I started using synergistic combinations, and the Shulkins touched on that, and one of the things that Sasha enlightened me about was when I asked him the same question that someone here asked was, um, about drug combinations. Now, there's two ways to go in seeking new experiences uh, in the psychedelic world. There's looking for new compounds, and then there's also looking to how you can creatively and safely combine these. And it turns out that many of the basic psychedelics are monamine oxidase inhibitors, very mild monamine oxidase inhibitors, which means that they will interfere with the body's process of detoxifying them and eliminating them from the system. So you will get enhanced effects, but you will get different effects. And with certain combinations, um, you will get
get improved at best. Because, as Sasha says, you must consider these as entirely new drugs. Because when you combine them, you do want to start off very low and work up to an area. And there are three things you must consider. One is dosage. Dosage requirements can change in combination. Um, two is order. Which order do you take? Which part of the combination? And the third is timing. How do you do the timing? How much space do you leave in between? And I would just like to share some of the safer combinations. I've done a lot of combinations. Um, for myself, I have found the drugs that are, uh, let me say, sacraments, since I'm not a great fan of uh, Nancy Reagan's just say no to drugs in a country that uses more drugs per capita than anyone in the world. Um, the sacraments uh, that I consider the true ones are mescaline, DMT, psilocybin, um, LSD, and ibogaine. I consider these the five most sacred. Now, uh, one of them is an artificial, the other come from the plant helpers. The other two that I found have been the uh, MDA, MDMA uh, family of pathogens, and they open the heart. Um, having studied Prujit, I began to look at this, um, the physical, emotional, and mental centers as a way of understanding which drugs affect which part and how they do it, and how to combine them with this in mind. For instance, um, one of the combinations uh, that you can use is MDMA and LSD. Now, they will combine in different ways in, in terms of which is the initial um, one and which is the non-initial one. For instance, if you take MDMA uh, first, which is my preferred way to do it, people do it the other way. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as candy flip. Uh, I refer to these as synergistic combinations. The synergy is a combination of two drugs which will give you a, an experience which is different from either of the two, but it may be an enhanced version, like as in a hybrid, uh, you can sometimes bring out the best qualities of both sides of the thing that you're combining. You can also bring out the worst side. So when you're working with synergistic combinations, you have to keep this in mind. Dosage, order, timing. Um, so the first synergy I did was uh, very, very early on in the 60s. And this was um, LSD. Um, and in about the eighth or tenth hour was to smoke the MT. And the spiritual visionary experiences of that combination are uh, pretty fantastic. And you do get into this place where people will say, oh, you're not ready for this. Go back. No, you're not high anymore. Goodbye. Or you go into higher and higher realms and you start to get messages about it what you can do. For instance, I became very enamored of uh, 
psychedelics when I was in my uh, latter years of uh, studying anthropology. And I had lived with Maria Sabinas down in Oaxaca and been initiated in the mushroom ceremony with her. Sort of followed in Hoffman's footsteps. And um, so one night, me and my little two lab techs were uh, tripping and uh, we decided to take uh, some EMT, which was kind of like scary. It was like the early 60s. We had never thought of combining two things. God knows what's going to happen. And uh, so I took out my DMT pipe and I smoked some DMT about the 10th hour of LSD. And the heavens opened up and I saw some things that were just truly amazing. So smoking DMT, the end of an LSD trip, I think is a, a good combination. Uh, and one that you can titrate by smoking a little bit, smoking a little bit more, smoking a little bit more during the LSD trip, and you can slowly work up to the level that is the most cosmic and the most comfortable for you at the same time. So I thought, well, that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> so I started looking for other synergistic combinations. And uh, the next synergistic combination I came across was combining another tryptamine with LSD which was closely related to DMT, which was the psychedelic mushrooms. And I think I was listening to uh, the Beatles' uh, Abbey Road album, and it was uh, She's So Heavy. And I was coming on first. I took psilocybin because I wanted the more gentle and motherly effects of psilocybin to come on first. Then I took about two grams, and then I took... 200 mics of acid. This is fairly robust doses. Um, and rainbows started growing out of the uh, air. It was quite exquisite. And beautiful rainbow waterfalls of sound. It was, it was a synesthetic where you perceive one sense as another sense. And so I was synesthizing the um, the uh, colors from the music in, in my visual field. And that was also a deeply spiritual and very beautiful experience. Um, moving on to later years, I got into more and more elaborate uh, combinations. And one of them I call the synergy. Um, and uh, there are uh, it took me many years to work this out. Uh, I did this, started this about 15 years ago, and I worked on it until the time I was arrested in 96. And um, this is a very interesting, and it's a rather esoteric uh, combination. It is uh, starting off with a small amount of GHB, a sub-threshold dose. We found that GHB seems to have a, a an anti, um, what's the word? Uh, it, it's anti-neurotoxic. It seems to be neuroprotective. So if you take it, not only is the onset of the MDMA smoother and more beautiful, uh, you have much less come down and you have much more facility to do during the trip. 
So after many years of perfecting this and combining it with 2CB, 2CB also at the end of an MVMA trip is very nice is it tends to put your legs back under you and diminish uh, the neurotoxic effects or the hangover or however you want to talk about what happens after an MDMA trip. Uh, so actually, so what we wound up doing was taking a sub-threshold dose uh, and timing it so it would come on about 10 minutes before the MDMA came on. Then we would allow that to um, uh, simmer and allow the love space between us. And I, this is I was doing this uh, with my partner. And uh, when that love state space had established itself, we would then take um, a little bit of Cialis or Viagra because MDMA is not a really uh, erectile uh, potent combination. Uh, and then we would get it to Yabyum, and we would then take ketamine. And so ketamine affects the, uh, it's a psychedelic. Uh, MDMA opens the heart space, and uh, the other components uh, work on harmonizing the physical centers. You get the three centers working in harmony and you move into a place that we call the God plane, which is an exquisite place to be in. Um, hmm? Yes. Yes. And, and the MDMA, by the way. Intramuscular MDMA injection. If you have a pharmaceutically pure, verified source, which of course has been my mission all my life, um, to, to do that, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very smooth, uh, rapid onset with minimal effects and seems to not go through the liver but goes through um, into the bloodstream of the brain first. We'll have questions. Uh, we'll have a question and answer period. Um, the, so, MDMA is a wonderful thing to take. You find that your heart opens and uh, that you're in a very loving space. You allow this space to open. But what happens when you come down? The next day you might be a little depressed. You might look at this as a kind of a one-off. Gee, I had this great love experience, but you know I don't feel that way anymore. So the second day we started to take LSD. Now, LSD is an imprinter. So what we found happening was that besides the usual joy and hilarity of LSD, we found that the love space that we had developed in, on the first day um, was now imprinted. And so as far as uh, under proper guidance, um, I think this would be a wonderful marital aid because as time went on, I just got closer and closer to that person rather than getting tired of that person. Anyway, so there's some of the uh, synergistic uh, effects of uh, some of the combinations. And does anyone have any questions?
Maybe if you uh, come up here and use this mic, then everybody can hear and you don't have to repeat the question. It'll go a lot quicker. So uh, that, that might be a better way to do this. You could clarify about the dosages that you took of the ketamine and MDMA and such, such like. Time, timing and dosage. Okay. Uh, I think I've gone into the timing. Uh, the dosage for MDMA would be 125 to 140. Uh, and usually, uh, if either orally or um, uh, by injection, I am injection in uh, two uh, halves over 10 minutes. A very, very smooth way to come onto it. Ketamine, uh, again, varies. You want to get to the place where you open up the psychedelic part. See, ketamine is classified as an anesthetic. But I think that's an improper and politically motivated classification. Because actually you have to name a, uh, a drug for its primary effect. And the primary effect of ketamine is a dissociative psychedelic. Um, whereas its anesthetic effects don't really uh, manifest until you get up into the, around a gram at one time IV. Whereas IM injections uh, would be the 50 to the 100 milligram range. Uh, the female partners usually take about 50 to 55. I take about 65 milligrams uh, for each shot. You can also do multiple boosters with both uh, half doses of uh, ecstasy at the three hour periods and um, and also the ketamine uh, alternating between them. The GHB, uh, continuous sub-threshold doses all the way through the trip, uh, about a gram of a pure crystal, usually whatever your dose is, like if someone gives you some GHB as a dissolution, you take four ml or six ml, take half and continue before the trip and just as it started to come on, should have a time that the NDA is coming on also. First, the GHB comes on, then a few, a few minutes later, the, it takes a little bit of practice and timing, how long does it take for onset for MDMA for me, and then time your GHB ingestion accordingly. Um, the uh, boosters, about 60 for the uh, MDMA and uh, boosters for uh, ketamine would be the same as the initial dose. Right here, Nick. I, uh, why don't you come on over here if you want to ask a question and we'll uh, kind of organize. Uh, hi, Nick. I, I hi. heard you speak for the first time at uh, Johanna's uh, Mind State Conference. I think it was maybe three or four of one of those. And uh, I really appreciate your... Uh, very loving, warm delivery of this information. Uh, I really uh, very touched me very deeply. So um, I wanted to ask you. You know, I, I smoke DMT in a sort of a closed glass bowl because I don't want to. It's so rare and hard to get that I don't want to waste it. But how many times can you continually? Because it has a low melting point, so it evaporates and then uh, mm -hmm. solidifies. So at, at, at some point, does it start to get toxic, or is it always the same return back to its? Uh, Original Are you talking about the material that condenses at that the bottom of the... on the bowl and then to, re, to reuse it. Right. Uh, you can 
use it. Uh, I have reused it. Uh, it's weaker and it's less pure. Uh, there are pyrogenic breakdown products, which I have not found personally to be uh, harmful. But what I try to do is put the DMT on a, uh, a substrate, which will totally absorb it so it doesn't drip through, and then enough stainless steel screens under that to catch anything that comes through. And well, the bowl, so the when... In, inside, inside the bowl, it's just really nice because it's just collected in one location. You can just re, re, re Yeah, if you have it trapped in that bowl yeah. and you're just doing the vapors, you can just do it until it's uh, no longer effective. I have a couple of questions. One of them is what's the effect of uh, mixing MDMA with psilocybin? And the other one is... Uh, Don't know to your first one. I've never done it, but I look forward to it. <laughs> uh, is, if you have any experiences with being in a particular drug like ketamine, but actually having like an ayahuasca experience? Because I've had a ketamine where... I was listening to an ayahuasca song and I'm singing this foreign song I don't know. And everything about it seemed ayahuasca, and I thought maybe I was brought upon by the music. And also, it seemed in certain dosages that all these, you know, high dosages of ketamine and acid seemed very, very similar. And I wonder if there's a crossover at a very, very high point. Well, personally, I have not found that LSD and ketamine combine well at all. Um, and certain times, I've seen people take them together, uh, and it's been okay. So at the end of the acid trip, uh, I wouldn't recommend that combination. That's one of the synergistic combinations I avoid, uh, and my friends. Um, MDMA and psilocybin. Yes, MDMA and psilocybin I have not tried, nor have I tried it with DMT, which is its parent compound. So I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. Maybe next brain. <laughs> Uh, you started out by mentioning that you became interested in psychedelic research because of the atom bomb. And that reflects an idea that I've heard here a lot, that psychedelics are not going to just change us, but they're going to change society. And I'm struggling with this idea because in my psychedelic community back in Chicago, I find it very difficult to motivate people even to write a letter to their representative about something we all agree on, like uh, pot legalization. And I'm becoming cynical about the idea that psychedelics are really going to change society, especially since I saw it before in 1968. And I, I guess I'd like you to kind of comment about that. Give me a more specific question. That's a pretty broad idea. Uh, I guess I would like to understand what evidence people see that psychedelics are actually changing the structure of society, rather than, than, than just themselves on some level. I, I see a disconnect. Right. Well, I mean, we are conditioned um, in our lives uh, to think of ourselves in different ways, you know, to act in different ways in different roles. When I'm in school, I act a certain way. When I'm with my parents, I act a different way. When I'm with my children, I act a different way. We all have many roles that we use. Now, how does um, how do psychedelics change the world? No fucking idea. Um, but I will tell you some stories that have been rather uh, foundational for me. When I got out of prison, uh, I went to a meeting of uh, people who were interested in discussing psychedelics. 
They don't take them. They just talk about them. Scientists and spiritualists and so on. And I was led over to this one table uh, where there were four guys about my age, you know, within five or ten years. And they were all discussing their early LSD experiences. And I said, well, you know, I was brought up under the shadow of the atomic bomb, and I think that had a large, you know, effect on me. And the juxtaposition of the discovery of LSD uh, the first time, where nothing was discovered that of any activity, and the second time, by Hoffman's presentiment, uh, brought the discovery of LSD to within a few uh, weeks or months of the first detonation of an atomic bomb. So we have a correlation here, uh, and if there is a kind of a parity or a balance in nature, uh, where one thing happens, it has you know, the butterfly effect and all this kind of things, and why is it that LSD was suddenly discovered to be effective right after the atomic bomb was exploded? So I discussed this with this group of people, uh, and mentioned that my father was one of the key workers of the Manhattan Project and the Chicago Project. And the guy next to me, it turns out, as we started talking, we were all ex-LSD manufacturers or major distributors. <laughs> and so the guy next to me said, well, you know, that's very interesting. I kind of got into it because my father was a co-pilot of the Enola Gay, which is the delivery uh, airplane for the first atomic bomb. And, I, and he said, and because of that, I feel I got really involved in LSD. Um, and the next guy uh, spoke up, and he said, oh, yes, well, my father did this on the Chicago Project. The other guy said, well, my father did this. And I said, isn't that interesting? We're all LSD manufacturers or uh, distributors on a large scale, and every one of us has had a father from the last generation who had been involved in the development of atomic weaponry. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing. Um, in the uh, 60s, we were all becoming disillusioned with the Vietnam War, and LSD brought this into a sharper focus when people were already getting tired of it, and it became something that may have been maybe attributed uh, to the death now of the uh, Vietnamese War. I think the same situation is starting to obtain now vis-a-vis -vis the Iraq War and the reconfiguration by, by the neocons of the Middle East, bringing us into wars which are tiresome, unfair, illegal, murderous, and so on, just the same as Vietnam. And so I had this feeling, just it's a feeling, you know, there's no way you can prove anything like this. That, that LSD has its own intelligence and that it was put here for us to um, explore and help our own intelligence develop and that if it's used intelligently and methodically and consistently, slowly, slowly, you will start to learn more and more things about yourself. Does that change the world? Not anything more than anything else, but it is another evolutionary development uh, that's occurred. Uh, hi. The, uh, 
ago, I came upon a uh, sheet of blotter that was a very, very interesting experience. It was a different, it was uh, like LSD, same, same kind of curve, same basic experience, same duration, but a markedly different effect. Uh, less visual, more spiritual, smoother, just put you into a different place, slightly different place. Uh, and pretty much everybody who experienced this had, almost everybody who experienced this had some kind of spiritual experience or religious experience taking this. So, uh, after this we were all very intrigued and we did whatever research we could to try to figure it out and discovered that there was some anecdotal evidence of a, an analog or variation on LSD that had been made back time, and I felt that there was a uh, possibility that you would be the man who would know something about it. I did make analogs of LSD. Uh, none of them have been as interesting as uh, LSD itself, but I too have had that experience, and you know, uh, I think it was Diogenes that said you can't step into the same river twice. And we are rivering all the time. And sometimes you take a psychedelic, you do all the preparations, and the hawks fly over and crow and call, and you say, oh, this is an auspicious sign, and we have fasted, and we have cleaned the house, and everything is perfect. We are in perfect harmony. This is going to be a great, and we have a lousy trip. <laughs> and sometimes just totally exhausted, wiped out, this is not a good time to trip with us. Oh, let's trip because we don't have time to do it. And it turns out absolutely beautiful. So, can you put your finger on mystery? I don't think so. Because if, if you do, then it's no longer mystery. And uh, it's possible there's some undiscovered analog. What year was this? this, um, this was about three years ago. Nondescript, very nondescript, large blotter paper. And the effects, I mean, this was very precious piece of paper has been carefully doled out. The, uh, but, uh, so I've had the opportunity to compare back and forth, back and forth. And it's the same, same experience every time. So, I'm <laughs> I, I heard the previous guy say DMT is, um, hard to get and so on. I've been using Salvia Divinorum, which seems to be easy to get illegal. Uh, why not? Isn't that DMT is the most active, is the main active ingredient there? No, no, no. It's ah. a Salvinorum A, which is an entirely different uh, chemical and not in the tryptamine family at all. At all? Yeah. Okay, I'll go back to experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I noticed on your list of uh, uh, sacraments you didn't include ayahuasca. Is that because there's two different plants involved, or you know, consider a sacrament? No, I didn't include ayahuasca because uh, the main ingredient that does everything in ayahuasca is methyltryptamine, and the beta carotenes that accompany it, which are strong monoamine oxidase inhibitors, are the ones that make uh, DMT orally active. But it's still DMT, and it's still, whether you smoke it, inject it, take it with ammonamine oxidase inhibitor, it's still it's DMT. DMT. It acts in different ways. Um, when you have a longer time to adjust to it, 
sometimes that's a big help. Um, but that the MC is, along with Ibogaine and Mescaline, the three most curative drugs, the MC is by far the most curative of all the drugs. And it's a real art learning how to use it. Okay, thanks. Hi, thanks for coming and speaking. My question was, uh, I guess I did LSD maybe like 1995, and then... Really, say again? I, I started doing LSD maybe in 95, and then it was like, kind of full of like water, like it's cheap, and I used to get it. And I was young, I used to go to that show, and it used to be everywhere. And I was hopped through it, you know, five years later. But then, maybe a few years ago, um, you know, I noticed people were selling for $10, you know, or $15 a hit. And then, I, you know, I heard stories about what happened, and I was just wondering, you know, how do you, how do you even know, like, if your LSD is real? Or, or what's the state of LSD today? So you can talk about what happened LSD 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 10 years ago. Like, what's the state of LSD today? Is it the LSD you get is similar to what existed 30 years ago? Um, and the stuff coming out today, I mean, why is it so? I just wonder why it's so complicated. Like, if LSD is such a good thing, why can't it just be out there? If good LSD be out there. It just seems like it seems like it seems simple to me. Like, I, I have no idea. No, I think you would. Nazi repression is a very good, uh, you know, start with that. I mean, if uh, we didn't have these draconian laws, uh, LSD could be manufactured and it could be dosed out uh, properly and stored in uh, the proper way. For instance, when I made Orange Sunshine, LSD is known for it being uh, extremely unstable and will break down over periods of time, even under the best conditions. But our sunshine, someone gave me one that was 30 years old, and I tried it, and it was still fully potent. It's made correctly, it's packaged correctly, it will keep its potency. Um, but, you know, market forces, supply and demand, uh, irresponsible manufacturers who don't even purify their compounds, take the reaction mixture, Dissolve it, pour it on paper, evenly, unevenly, it doesn't matter. Some people take 10 strip, they don't feel anything. Some people take one, and they're overdosed. So it has to do with responsibility in manufacturing. And LSD is difficult to purify, it's difficult to work with. How is the LSD today? Pardon? How is the LSD today? Oh, there's fine LSD available. You just have to find out you know, by doing careful research, who's getting the good LSD, where are they getting it, can you get some, what dosage does it seem to be, and figure that out. Responsibly, just don't take any shit that's on the street. Do some research. Work on, if you want to have a spiritual experience, and you really need to look for sacred material that's been prepared in a sacred way with respect for the material and the people that are taking it, which has been what I've done all my life. Hi. Hi. I did some Orange Sunshine at a Dead concert in 1970. It was really good. Thank you for that. Very welcome. On behalf of the uh, three other friends, we split it four ways. It came in a Christmas card. And it was the best ever. Now, so I did a lot of LSD during the 70s. Haven't much since then. I was invited to Candy Flip later today. So, any, any advice? You said you did. Absolutely. Uh, I've done a 
about candy flipping. Uh, and candy flipping is great because it combines the heart space. In, in effect, the synergy I was describing before is kind of like a long, stretched out candy flip. Uh, because you take ecstasy the first day and you re-imprint the love experience the second day. Very good for relationships. Um, candy flipping itself, you know, it's like, depends on your basic biochemical predisposition. Um, personally, when I do the LSD MDMA synergy, I prefer to take the MDMA first, allow the heart experience to develop, and then take the LSD, which then puts the sparkle into it. So were you talking an hour? Uh, wait until you start to feel the uh, MDMA come on, and then take the acid. Okay, so I did MDMA one time before, just by itself, and I noticed that it was not of the similar duration to an LSD experience. No, it's not. It's not. What will happen is that you'll have the LSD, DMT, uh, LSD, MDMA experience. The synergy lasts longer in combination. Uh, the MDH is usually about four to five hours. Um, and the synergistic combination of LSD and MDA usually goes a good six to seven hours. Uh, so it extends, the, again, as Sasha says, combinations are a new drug experience. And uh, so as soon as you feel the MDMA starting to come on, that wave come on, take your LSD. Okay, because the only time I'd ever take the LSD in a crowd back in the day was at a Grateful Dead concert. So thank you, Burners, for making an old hippie feel welcome. Yeah. Good afternoon. Hi. Nice to see you. Thank you for sharing. My name's Natalie, and um, I just wanted to say thank you for what you just said about setting the intention. I think it's what I got from creating sacred medicine and being conscious of that. I think that's an important message for all of us. Like you said, be aware of what we are imbibing in. With that said, I'd like to share that there are several physicians that I know um, in the area that I'm from who are using things like Eva Game to help people, and it's very successful in breaking some big walls down at drug addiction. And so that's an important thing I think that needs to be further explored. Also seeing um, several physicians using targeted amino acid therapy in helping to sustain both psychedelic experiences and also to shift people who are crossing the line into an addictive state. With that said, um, my question for you is, do you have, and would you like to share experience with Amanita Muscaria, that mushroom? I've never tried Amelita muscaria. It, uh, the people that took it seemed to be on a kind of a weird masochistic death trip and it sort of <laughs> put me off. And <laughs> well, I just see them in the corner here and it's nice to see them again. I'm just wondering. You might have switched it off accidentally. I have not taken Amanita muscaria, and I really don't know much about it. I mean, I know how it works, and, and I've 
use some oil, changes into ibotenic acid, and it's best if you're going to be taking take a well-dried specimen that's been hanging around uh, for a while. Uh, as far as the intention aspect of uh, the chip goes, is, you know, we all grow up uh, in a type of prison. It's called school, parents, society. We're conditioned to think and act in a certain way. When we get to a responsible age where we don't need the controls of, no, stay here, you can't run into traffic, you're only two years old, uh, and we can start to take responsibility for ourselves, we begin to realize we can create our own realities. And we have this choice every day between joy and love, like between joy and misery. And uh, I've evolved to the stage where it's only between joy and love. <laughs> and many times trying to get something done, I felt I had to delve into a negative state. I had to get really pissed off at something or someone in whatever I was doing to get the job done. So I had to get it done. It is our birthright to choose joy over misery. And this, I think, is a very important message for everyone. This may be a little bit too political, but I'm curious. I'm really interested in the Native American Church and these peyote as a sacrament, and I'm curious what you think about their inability to grow it for their own use as a sacrament. I think that with time, it may actually be a religion that may no longer be there because the peyote doesn't grow like it used to. It's being distributed across the country and not just in a localized region. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. I am familiar with uh, this particular problem, and again, it's another drug war uh, monstrosity. Um, the, the plight of the Native American church, which as an anthropologist, which is how I got into all this, uh, was a very important discovery for me. And when I did my first mescaline trip, I did it uh, exactly according to, um, I think it was the Lakota or Kiowa ceremony, fasting for three days, crying for a vision, and I had one. Uh, and it was very effective that way. But prior to that, I had been buying large cactus plants by mail order. I'd get a hundred plants, whole plants from Smith's Cactus Ranch. Root included, probably. Hey? And um, and I would, and that was very potent. And the Native American Church has not been able to access the Constitution very consistently. And the Supreme Court's been very schizophrenic. Every ten or twenty years, it says, "No, this is a crime. No, this is a religious right. This is a crime. This is a religious. this has happened at least half a dozen times in the last century." Um, and so, when finally, pretty much everywhere has decided that yes. There is some argument for using plant helpers as sacraments in our life, as uh, psychedelic helpers. Um, so there's not been so much pressure. So, but then there's a the thing of like harvesting the peyote, right? Now, peyote doesn't really develop strong psychedelic effects until they're about seven years old. And that's when the 
concentration of mescaline starts to uh, get to a level where if you take five or ten buttons, you have quite a trip. Uh, so the Native American church uh, has many times asked for permission to grow it, and they have been forbidden to grow it. And, but they are licensed payoteros who are allowed to collect four of them. Only four. Wow. Or five. Yeah. Maybe three. And very basically few. they make peyote into an endangered species and they bring back very small uh, peyote buttons, which are basically inactive. And people are saying, well, I just took 1,200 buttons and I don't feel anything. And they say, oh, well, it's just because your faith is weak. No, sorry, it's not because your faith is weak. It's because the peyote doesn't contain mescaline. And this is a real shame. And we need to do work in this field to legalize the cultivation of peyote so it can be grown to the proper um, sacramental age. Can I do a little quick follow-up? As a Western scientist, it's hard to do that. It's yeah. really hard to be in contact with the Native American church because of their persecution for so long. It's a really difficult thing. Yeah. Interesting. The Peyote Way Church does grow it, and the Native American church doesn't. They're not allowed to. And very strange. But the other Peyote church probably does it illegally, no? They do it in Arizona. No, oh, Arizona's allowed to. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, well, but I another crack of light, you know, <laughs> up here. But First Amendment rights, you know, freedom to religion. Well, you know, when I uh, fought the Orange Sunshine uh, trial, I uh, thought I was probably going to lose, although I knew I was right in what I was doing, and that this was absolutely my religious right to do this, and I've always treated it as a sacred religious experience. This was my sacrament, no other sacrament. And so I spoke to my lawyer, who was quite a good lawyer, Michael Kennedy, and uh, I said, let's do a First Amendment defense because this is key to my position in life. He says, we can do a First Amendment defense. Let me see if I can get you a list of lawyers who will take you into a losing position like that. Mm -hmm. I said, oh. He said, no, it will not fly. Let's do it another way. Thank you. We've got time for one more question here. It's okay, Nick. Hi, Nick. Thanks. Hung out with you a little bit there in Switzerland. Hi. Um, speaking of this, I was just wondering, uh, I haven't heard the latest on Casey's case, and I know, you know who I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yeah, and uh, just wondering if you have an update. I know he was going to do the, uh, you know, world, world European Congress rights thing. I know he's taken his case to the world court, or was thinking about taking it to the world court, and after Switzerland, I spoke to his girlfriend, uh, who I met at a party in uh, England, and uh, she apprised me of this. I haven't, uh, there were a number of people raising money for it. No new trial. Well, if it were a new trial, it would be in the world court. Uh, but I don't have any further updates since then. Thank you, Nick. And will you all help me welcome a real, real, For those of you who are still with us, well, all I can say is thanks for putting up with the poor audio quality of this recording. I know it wasn't easy to pick Nick's voice out of the background noise, but 
For those of you who have a deep interest in these topics, you can understand why I wanted to podcast this talk anyway. Maybe the elves of the playa thought this information was so important that they wanted to make sure that only the most dedicated psychonauts will make the effort to hear it. As I mentioned in my introduction, Nick and I are planning on doing a live interview sometime soon. And while it won't be studio quality, you will at least be able to hear him without all the background noise. And in case you missed it, by the way, the talk that Nick gave at John Hanna's Mind States conference uh, is in our podcast number 37, and it's titled Reflections on Imprisonment and Liberation as Aspects of Consciousness. And in it, he describes the odyssey of his imprisonment, and if you haven't heard that talk, well, I highly recommend it. By the way, if any of you have a question you'd like me to ask Nick in this upcoming podcast, just uh, send it to me in an email or through tribe.net. My uh, direct email address, by the way, is lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. In fact, you can find uh, all of these podcasts and a bunch of other stuff at matrixmasters.com. Now, in case you're wondering why it's been so long since my last podcast, well, I've been in one of those horrible software loops that seem to steal so much of our time these days. Thanks to uh, a few of our regulars here in the salon who made some donations to the cause, I was able to buy some software that promised to give us a little better sound quality. I won't bore you with all the details, but suffice it to say that after about a week of working perfectly, the bugs began to crawl out of my bright, shiny new software and have so far cost me about 30 hours of screwing around and trying to get it to work properly again. And to make matters worse, the company who sold it to me is located in Australia, and getting any kind of tech support, which I paid extra for, by the way, (laughs) has been next to impossible, and so now I'm back to using the same old software that I started with over a year ago. I'd been hoping to get a satisfactory response from them in time to clean up the recording you just heard, but they only respond every other day or so, and now the weekend has begun down under which is where I'd like to dump this crappy software I paid for. All in all, though, the experience once again has convinced me that the only software worth using is open source. So all you open source people out there, hey, thanks for doing what you do. Okay, enough of my complaining. If I can, I I hope to get one more podcast out in the next few days, but if that doesn't happen, please don't give up on me. Right now, my priority is, is to finish writing a talk that I'll be giving at the Oracle Gathering in Seattle at the end of October. I'll be talking around 8.30, and Daniel Pinchbeck will be speaking right after me, and uh, hopefully I'll see some of you there. Now I'd better get back to working on that talk, and so I'll sign off for today. My thanks again go out to Darren, Mark, Michael, Brian, and the rest of the Entheon Village crew and your supporters without whom the Palenque Norte Lecture Series could not have taken place this year. And my thanks also to Chateau Hayuk for the use of your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.